0: Hello and welcome to This is Modern Rock. I'm Will Westerkow. Normally, this show is focused on taking a chronological look back at the Billboard Modern Rock charts. This episode is going to be a little different. During the course of my research for the show, I occasionally run into a band that I'm not only unfamiliar with, but that just blows me away. And my guest today is one of those artists. Her name's Amelia Fletcher. While as far as I know, she was never involved with a song that charted on the modern rock charts, I would say in a more perfect world, she should have had many charting songs. And good music is good music. She's written a lot of good music. So I'm very excited to share her music today with all of my listeners. Amelia Fletcher, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. In addition to your tremendous body of musical work, which we'll get to shortly, you've also found time to earn a doctorate of philosophy, thrive in your career, which is somehow economics related, as I understand it. And you've managed to raise a family, start a record label, you continue to record new music, at least from the outside, from my perspective, it appears superhuman, I I have to say.
1: (laughs) um well <laughs> thank
2: you very much I mean I think that it may actually be kind of the opposite of superhuman because I probably have ended up being a jack of all trades I mean it may be why I never ended up in any of the rock charts that you talked about earlier because I've I've never given music quite as much focus and time as it it should have been. I've probably never given my work quite as much focus. And time. So I do all of them and it is exhausting and they all go pretty well. But yeah, I maybe sometimes spread myself a little thinly. I guess what I definitely don't ever do is really get to relax or watch TV or <laughs> normal things like that.
0: Sure. You've also been a guest vocalist or musician on countless albums by other bands. And so by researching your work, it led me to discover a number of other bands that I hadn't heard of that I really love now, such as The Wedding Present and The Poo sticks and Sportique. So thank you not just for joining me and for your music, but, you know, thank you for leading me down, uh, I guess, this musical rabbit hole to discover all of this great stuff.
2: Oh, I'm very pleased you've been led down that musical,
0: <laughs> musical rabbit hole. Before we really get started, I wanted to talk briefly about how I discovered your music. Maybe four years ago, I was looking through a pile of free CDs that a friend was getting rid of. And I picked up a CD by a band called the Softies. I had never heard of this band, but I was struck by the album art because I actually recognized the artist who had done the cover. So I took it home, I spun it three or four times, and one song in particular from this album really grabbed me, and I played it over and over and over again. The song was called I Can't Get No Satisfaction, Thank God. And when I looked at the liner notes, I discovered it was the only song on the album that was not written by the Softies. It was actually credited to somebody named Tallulah Gosh who Mm -hmm. I I didn't know what that was I didn't know who that person was so I went online to see who Tallulah Gosh was and I discovered this was not a person but a band I listened to the original version of the song and I was blown away it was even better than the cover stuck in my head for days so I tracked down Tallulah Gosh's discography and I was hooked so Mm -hmm. I'm gonna play a quick clip of I can't get no satisfaction thank God Tallulagosh were Amelia Fletcher, Elizabeth Price, Matthew Fletcher, Peter Momchiloff, and Rob Percy, your husband, was a founding member but was shortly replaced by Chris Scott. That's right. Okay. This was not actually your first band. I I read that you were in a band before Tallulagosh called the Splatter Babies. Is that right?
2: Yes, but that really was just a school band. It wasn't very good at all. I mean, it was great for learning and getting experience of being in a band, but I don't think anyone would have liked to hear us very <laughs> much. So Tallulah Gosh was my first kind of proper band where I was doing something which I genuinely thought people should hear. And fortunately, people did seem to want to hear it.
0: Tallulah Gosh, I don't know if I call it punk music, but it definitely wouldn't exist without punk. And So much punk music is so very masculine and macho and from a male perspective. So hearing this music, it was like the other part of this conversation to me, if that makes any sense.
2: It totally does. And I think it's really gratifying to hear, actually, because I think that was really what the band was about in that we were very inspired by punk rock, but we were very determined that we wanted to also be a girl band and actually there were kind of obviously female bands in punk rock but they were quite cool and quite strong they weren't kind of girly and we kind of wanted to bring out that side of things we were huge 60s girl group fans and so writing kind of pop songs like in fact the ramones were as well so i mean we probably got that a little bit from the ramones may have even discovered 60s girl groups through the ramones but we definitely wanted to bring over that female side and the songs are very much from the female perspective for the most part. And it was also a band with five members who all wanted to do slightly different things. And I think it's interesting that you think we sounded like nothing else, because that's probably because... All of us wanted to be in different bands. So, uh, you know, our our drummer basically wanted to be the Ramones. I wanted to be 60s girl group. Our guitarist wanted to be Dwayne Eddy, I think. (laughs) (laughs) And our bassist actually wanted to be in some kind of kraut rock band, I think. So it it was just a funny old mix. We didn't really know what we were doing. We didn't really know how to play that well. And I think the combination of all those factors somehow created something actually quite interesting.
0: Yeah. I've read a number of early descriptions and reviews, and they throw the word shambolic around a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, maybe unlike the first couple singles, it sounds that way. But very quickly, it seems like the band learned how to play their instruments. But there is this streak of misogyny running through a lot of the reviews that I read that maybe in hindsight almost seems comical, but some of them are just straight up mean, (laughs) like really awful. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. I know that there were certainly fans who really gravitated towards your band, but also it seems like for whatever reason, having young women singing and doing cutesy songs and singing about boyfriends and crushes, it upset a lot of men.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, you're totally right. What It was a a strange thing because we were discovered somehow very, very quickly. Literally, you know, our first gig, there was a journalist at and then he came to a couple more gigs and then basically put us on page three of the NME, which at that point was, you know, a pretty huge thing. So we got popular, got a record label all very, very, very quickly. And when we genuinely didn't really know how to play. And as you say, we, we did learn quite quickly. And, and we were also lucky with you know having producers that were very understanding and supportive in terms of trying to make the records sound as good as they possibly could have. Initially, there was a huge amount of positive reviews of us. And I think what that did is immediately created the potential for a backlash because it meant that we'd been blown up to be something quite big, which we weren't ready for. We were doing gigs where we were kind of forgetting half the songs halfway through and having to go back and start again. (laughs) And I think that, you know, some people found that very charming. I kind of hoped that people found it charming. But some people were like, well, you know, this isn't what rock and roll should be like. Rock and roll is men. Rock and roll is thrusting. Rock and roll knows what it's doing. Rock and roll can play its instrument properly. Rock and roll has ploughed a furrow for many years, really, you know, mastering its technique and its skills and hear these kind of silly little girls come along and they <laughs> think they can, they can do it when they can't even remember how to get to the end of their song. So I can see why people were annoyed by us. I think that part of that annoyance was because we've been built up so much. But I think also part of it was at that time, the music press in the UK was extraordinarily male-based, macho, and basically sexist. There were very few women working in the music press at all, and those that were, they had to become very macho to kind of succeed. It was a pretty toxic environment, I think, amongst those journalists. So most of the most positive journalists about us were male, but they ended up kind of almost having to fight for us internally (laughs) against a whole set of other less positive, more traditional males.
0: Well, let's go ahead and play one more song from Tallulah Gosh. Do you have any thoughts on what we should listen to? I mean, Tallulah Gosh by Tallulah
2: Gosh is probably one of the most popular ones. I think what's unique about that one is very, very rare to have songs that just completely change speed um, in the middle. And in the, today's world, with kind of everyone playing along to click tracks, it would never, <laughs> it would never. But I I don't think we even really quite realized it was happening. We just thought, you know, this is how songs work. So I'm quite pleased with how eccentric it is.
0: Yeah, good choice. (laughs) Let's go ahead and hear it. Here is Tallulagosh by Tallulagosh. Tallulah Gosh released a number of singles, but never put out a full-length album, as far as I know. Yeah. Is there a reason for that? You said you were signed to a label. Did the band just fall apart?
2: Well, at that time, singles were quite a big thing, and we felt like a singles band. So we just kept putting out singles. And I think the idea was that at some point we would make an album. And it just, I don't know, it never quite, it never quite happened. We just kept releasing singles. And in the end, all of those singles got put on an album. But the reason that we stopped, one was that in the UK, it was 1988, and dance music suddenly became hugely popular, um, house music, and suddenly no one really wanted to listen to indie music anymore. And I felt, you know, why would we be ploughing this furrow? Um, when no one's interested in fact but loads of people were still coming to our gigs when we stopped and then our last gig was huge but I was worried that no one was going to be interested going forward I was also 21 and I <laughs> silly looking back but I thought that people shouldn't be in bands after they were 21 so I thought we should stop on that basis as well and the other issue was that Tallulah Gosh was quite democratic. I already said that it sounded like the mix of all of the bands we kind of wanted to be. But it was also true with the songwriting. So we all wrote songs. In fact, the song you chose right up front is a Pete Momchiloff song, not one of mine, although it's a great song. And I was writing songs quite slowly and everyone else was writing songs quite fast and I liked everybody else's songs but I didn't really like always singing their words and I was getting more and more uncomfortable that the band was becoming something that I was fronting that wasn't really enough representative of, of kind of my creativity as it were so rather selfishly I decided that there was too much democracy and that we should stop the band.
0: Was there ever any thought from the rest of the band to continue without you? That's a really interesting
2: question. <laughs> I just said we should stop and no one argued <laughs> with <wouldn't> me. <we?
0: laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, so Gosh split in 1988 and you briefly flirted with a solo career in uh, more of the dance music sphere, yeah. I suppose.
2: i just finished at university and I was thinking, what do I do next? Am I going to try and actually be a pop star? Okay, this is the way everybody's being a pop star right now. I'll have a go. My grandpa had died and left me 1,500 pounds. And I thought, okay, I'll use that to record these couple of songs properly in a proper studio. And I did it and I was really excited about the results and then sent it off to a load of labels and mostly got no response. One label responded and said, yeah, this has potential. Maybe when you've recorded it properly, we'll we'll be interested. And I was like, that was my last money in the world.
0: Ouch. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so then I thought, okay, I clearly don't really understand how to make dance music. My true love is indie, pop. all the music, all my records were indie. All the bands I'd ever seen were indie. That's kind of what I knew and understood. So I thought, look, even if no one's going to like it, <laughs> I'm going to go back and um, do the music that I really love.
0: Well, good. I'm, I'm glad you did. In 1989, you formed a new band called Heavenly, and it's largely the same lineup as Lagash, But I assume this time, when you put it together, you, you said I'm the boss. Is that? <laughs> That's
1: correct. Yes.
2: <laughs> yeah. So uh, Heavenly was uh, yeah a bit of a dictatorship. Before we started, Pete and Rob started their own band called the Umbrella Birds with a completely different singer. And that, first of all, made me a bit jealous and made me want to start a band myself, but also meant that I could say, "Okay, well, you've got your band. So can we start Heavenly? And you can be in it, but it's my band.
0: Yeah.
2: (laughs) So I have to say the dictatorship that was Heavenly did weaken, crumble somewhat over the years. And by the end, there was even a degree of others contributing songs and and contributing lyrics. So it wasn't really a dictatorship.
0: Okay, well, let's listen to a few Heavenly tracks. I'm going to kick things off with a couple genuine indie pop classics. First, we're going to hear Heavenly's second single, which was released in 1990 and predates their first full-length album, Heavenly vs. Satan. The song is called Our Love is Heavenly. That was great! <laughs> Let's hear another early heavenly track. This one is from the band's second album, Le Jardin de Heavenly, from 1992, and it's a bit unusual because it features a guest vocalist. In this case, Calvin Johnson of the influential American indie band Beat Happening. The song is called See Is the Heavenly Option. Your gal- that's
1: not and love will you over
2: so the first two albums were definitely very different to what came afterwards, in that they were still a bit like Tallulah Gosh, trying to very much kind of tell stories of boy-girl love type, you know, classic pop. They were meant to be fun, and they were meant to be lightweight, and like Tallulah was, inspired by 60s girl groups, but with a little bit of extra darkness added.
0: And then Heavenly released an EP called "Punk Girl" or "Add a Girl," depending on where you live. And the music on that EP is different. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's almost shocking. It's like you leveled up as a songwriter. Not that they were not great songs before, but it's like when the Beatles discovered they could sing about things other than girlfriends, and suddenly the the topics are more serious and heavy and varied. It almost feels like it's out of nowhere. Where did this come from?
2: It's interesting that it sounds like it came out of nowhere. In fact, what was happening is it was all very, very influenced by being on K records, which is a record label based in Olympia, Washington, actually. So in the UK, we were on Sarah records, uh, which is a very indie pop label, but K in America was indie pop, but it was also had a bit more of a punk aesthetic. And, Calvin and Candice at K were very invested in this whole music scene in Olympia, Washington. And we used to go over there once a year, pretty much, to tour the West Coast. And so we got to know a lot of people over there. And one summer when we were there, everyone was basically talking about this thing called Riot Girl. And we'd not heard of it in the UK at all. And it just literally... Pretty much been invented (laughs) in Olympia, Washington. The actual term comes from the fanzine Girl Germs, which was put together by Alison Wolfe and Molly Newman from a band called Bratmobile. They were from Olympia, Washington, and they were playing a lot at that time. And so we got to meet them and we got to understand why they'd created Riot Girl, what they were so angry about. And it was a really big moment for I think particularly me and Kathy who was in the band by that point as well because I think we had been feminist all the time in that we had been very determined to do what we wanted to do and we decided not to let ourselves get too upset when misogynist music journalists wrote horrible things about us but we hadn't really thought of ourselves as that word feminist because at that time it felt like a very 70s thing. Like It felt like that feminism was a thing that old people, <laughs> it sounds really weird to say this now, but older people than us were into. And then suddenly, Riot Girl was actually about all the things that we did care about. It wasn't about glass ceilings and things like that, which I now care about. But at the time, I was like, well, who cares about that? But it was about date rape. It was about girls not being able to see things at gigs. And it was about misogynist music journalists. I mean, it was all those sorts of things. So it was about the stuff that we really cared about. And suddenly we were like, okay, we're so pleased that people are saying this stuff and saying it in a really articulate way. But we also kind of thought, well, we don't want to become just a a shouty riot girl band because there's, (laughs) there's quite a few of those and they're really brilliant. But you know, it would seem kind of wrong for us to suddenly do that but we want to capture some of these kind of exciting and important ideas that they are singing about in our music too and so what we did is essentially we took a lot of the thinking from them we played with Bikini Kill we played with Bratmobile a lot we played with Huggy Bear in the UK which was kind of the first big UK riot girl band and We toughened up our music, but we didn't really go all the way to being, you know, how a lot of the other Riot Girl bands sounded. And again, I think the result was really interesting because we ended up, again, being between two stools, but somehow that made something quite good.
0: I agree. I've listened to a fair amount of Riot Girl, and obviously it's not exactly written for me. And so I definitely appreciate the content, but from a musical standpoint a lot of it is just a little too lacking melody maybe yeah. but i think that's why the heavenly stuff was so effective for me you know i it didn't musically sound too terribly different from what had come before but then you know listening to the lyrics of let's say hearts and crosses or something and it it sneaks up on you you know it's it feels like it it's going to be a love song and then you're like, "What? What did I just hear? What? Like, what's yeah. going on? Oh, oh my!" Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it's really effective, and I think I think it's one of the best EPs that I own, actually. Wow. Yeah, Good. I think it's it's really cool. So, let's play a song. Is there a song from? Oh gosh, I really like all of those songs.
2: Hearts and Crosses was not one of the a sides, but I do really, really like it. So maybe that one.
0: Yeah. Okay. Great. Let's hear Hearts and Crosses. Melanie, Melanie,
1: Melanie, lies down to sleep with her head full And dreams and hatches Melody, of sleep. Melanie, Melanie,
2: Melanie, please make me leave with a heart so in peace. It's never yet used. Then one romantic day, he took her hand and led her away. He pushed her down, removed her clothes, then put his body closer than close. He
1: held her mouth when she tried to scream. It was all so different from in her dreams. He never smiled, he never whispered. He bit her hard, but never kissed her.
0: After that, Heavenly put out a couple more albums. The next one was The Decline and Fall of Heavenly. I'm curious about the title. I like all of your work, but for me... I- Not to be rude, but this is maybe my least favourite of of the (laughs) catalogue. Was the title, was there something going on in the band? Was it supposed to be (laughs) (laughs) tongue-in-cheek? No, I mean,
2: all our titles were kind of silly. Um, I don't quite know why we always did silly titles. From Heavenly versus Satan to even the Tluna Gosh album was called Rock Legends, Volume 69. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it was... (laughs) We just always did that. So I don't think the decline and fall was meant to be that the album was a a great decline and fall. I talked about us being between two stools, but I think on that one we were not quite sure where we were going. So the songs are angrier, they're darker, and the music is as well. But the final album, we kind of got it really together. That one, I think there's some really great songs on there, actually. But I agree it's maybe not
0: the best. But you're right. Moving on to Operation Heavenly, the final Heavenly album, I think it is a return to form. But it's different, definitely different than the early stuff. It sounds more polished or poppy or produced somehow. And this is 1996. I feel like I can hear some influence from Britpop seeping into the music. Was that intentional?
2: I think it was. It, that's kind of, I guess, what we were listening to at that point and what everyone in the UK was into. I like the album because I think it is a funny combination of the Heavenly that was always there and Britpop. But then it also still has some of that Riot Girl inspiration in there. So it's, I think it's a nice amalgamation. And I, I think that one actually does work.
0: Let's listen to one more Heavenly track. This one's from their final album, 1996's Operation Heavenly, and it's called Trophy Girlfriend. there's just already been so much great music and a number of singles that I think are just undeniably catchy. You know, you listen to them one time and they're stuck in your head. Was there any interest from bigger labels? I mean, it seems like there were probably so many bands being signed when Britpop exploded. Like, was that an option for you all or were you adamantly indie um, (laughs) and (laughs) refused to move to a larger label?
2: So when in Tallulah Gosh, we did get a meeting with a, a major label. And that was interesting because they very much said, yes, we'd be interested in signing you. We think you have great potential, but you would, of course, have to stop your degree because we need you to focus on music full time. And I just only started my degree relatively recently and I didn't want to jeopardize that. This is what I mean by being a kind of jack of all trades. I, I didn't want to do that thing and I, then actually after that I became surer and surer that I'd made the right decision I think had Tallulah Gosh signed to a major label oh god we'd probably have made a really terrible album our heart wouldn't have been in it and we might have lost enthusiasm for music and never ever doing it again I mean I just don't think it would have been a good thing then once we had Heavenly we were all kind of starting well I was doing postgraduate work but others were starting their careers and we were happy being independent we were happy on Kay and Sarah and also dance music was what was popular no one would have signed us anyway so that was never an issue you're right that by the time Britpop was coming about we were a bit more zeitgeisty and we clearly knew better what we were doing and we did have some A&R men sniffing around a little bit but, and I have to say, at this point, I'd like to have all my indie credentials and say, yeah, I never would have considered it, but I absolutely would have considered it. Unfortunately, the rest of the band were absolutely <laughs> refused to consider it because they, you know, they liked doing music as a hobby, but they didn't want to do it as their life. They all had, you know, things that they were doing in the rest of their lives. And so at that point, we just thought it's not going to happen at this point. I would have liked it to, but, you know.
0: Yeah. And then, I don't know if you want to talk about this, I don't want to dredge up bad memories, but my understanding is that Heavenly essentially ended because of the death of your brother, who was the drummer in the band.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And in fact, I guess in retrospect, again, it was a very good thing we hadn't signed to a bigger label. It was a huge nook. with my brother, but he'd also been in all of our bands, and it just felt that it would be weird to do music Without him, it certainly would be weird to do heavenly, but at that point, we thought it'd be weird to do anything. We just thought, okay, that's that, then we won't do music anymore. I don't think any of us had ever had anyone really close to us die, so we were all, I think, for at least about a year walking around in a bit of a kind of mist. We were kind of carrying on with our jobs and careers and things, but just being a bit unsure of our place in the world, I guess. So, um, it was just, yeah, very, very sad,
0: yeah, and then. Maybe a year later, the surviving members of the band decided to make a new group called Marine Research. Yeah. You know, I read that initially the idea was to do something very different, maybe a little more experimental. You were working with John Stanley, who was also known as DJ Downfall. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So Marine Research put out one album called Sounds from the Gulf Stream in 1999. Yeah, so
2: originally, as you said, it was meant to be kind of more electronic. We were thinking that would be a really interesting way to go. And not to have a drummer would be a really good thing because obviously we didn't want to kind of replace Matthew. And so I wrote a set of songs that I thought would work for that. But as had kind of happened when I wrote the songs to be a disco star back in '86. (laughs) I just, I write certain sorts of songs and they don't actually really fit other genres. So we were trying to make these songs squeeze into a kind of more experimental genre. of uh, They were meant to be more repetitive and lots of leaps and things going on. And they just didn't quite sound right. And in fact, John, who we'd got brought in because he, was, he made that sort of music himself and he was very good at doing all of that, he kind of said, you know, I think this band needs real drums. It's not the band you think it is. <laughs> and we said, oh, and we thought he was trying to leave, basically, because he was saying he didn't want to do the programming. And he said, but I can play drums if you want me to try it. And we were like, OK, yeah, <laughs> let's try it. So, yeah, we made the album. And I think it is an interesting album in that I mean I think there's some really really good songs myself and I think that it is a little bit more experimental than we've been before but yeah clearly not as experimental as, as originally intended
0: yeah well let's listen to Queen Bee here's Queen Bee from Marine Research Research folded in 99, and in 2001, you started a new band called Tender Trap. Many of the same players. You're still there, of course. Rob Percy is also in the band. John Stanley came back for this one. But Peter and Kathy left, and you picked up a few new members. Can you talk about why this new band, why not continue with Marine Research, and where this all came about?
2: Well, it was...
0: (laughs) Essentially, it was personal reasons, i.e. effectively, I got
2: together with Rob. <laughs> um, <laughs> I said earlier, I've been together with Pete. Um, yeah, and yeah. although we remain friends, all of us to this day, it was obviously slightly tricky. So sure. we decided that it was kind of more sensible just to finish that band and let people go their separate ways. So then we weren't, again necessarily sure we were going to do any music anymore, but gradually me and Rob just started tinkering. And yeah, the story of my life is actually stopping bands and thinking I'll never do music again, and then somehow doing music again.
0: Well, I'm glad you do. <laughs> this is one of the things that I think are, is fascinating about your musical output is Tululu Gosh, was fantastic, and Heavenly is fantastic. And Tender Trap is also fantastic. And it seems to me like... With each subsequent Tender Trap album, I think they just got better and better and better, which, you know, this far into your career is pretty amazing. And yeah, I mean, they're all good albums, but the final album, 10 Songs About Girls, I think is just... Wonderful.
2: Thank you very much. I I agree, actually. I think that the first album, again, we were trying to be a little bit experimental. It generally doesn't have that many drums on it. We were trying to do what we tried to do in the previous band. And it's okay. There are some good songs. But it was actually very much just kind of me and John and Rob kind of in a basement playing around the songs didn't really even see the light of day in front of an audience. And I kind of think that's always a bit of a mistake because you learn a lot from seeing how audiences react to songs. And I agree with you. We got better and better and bringing in the new members really, really helped and kind of took us in new directions. And it also made me think that I, at least, am better in bands when there's quite a few people bringing their input because somehow... It just creates more interesting things
0: Yeah Well, let's listen to a couple songs from Tender Trap Let's start things off with Do You Want a Boyfriend? This is from 2010's Dunset, Dunset Do
1: you want a boyfriend? Sure if he's not too vain. Do you want a boyfriend? He's gotta have a brain charm and kindness Does he
0: have
1: to dress nice? Smart as indeed can be Does he have to kiss right? All the best things are free Yeah, that would be
0: Yeah, that one is just a lot of fun. It has some girl group stylings. I I really like the kind of call and response, like the interplay between the two vocal parts.
2: One of the things about Tender Trap is it was the first and actually only time that I've ever been in a band where the females outnumbered the males. Mm -hmm. And therefore we could have the kind of three-part harmonies and it it just, it was so nice.
0: Yeah. Yeah, let's go ahead and listen to one more from Tender Trap. We're going to hear MBV... Or My Bloody Valentine yeah. from 10 Songs About Girls, 2012. He was pretty, he was pretty, just like I Trap never officially split up, but are on a uh, possibly permanent hiatus. Is that more or less correct? Yeah,
2: we didn't split up. What happened was me and Rob decided to move to the countryside with our kids and actually with my mother as well. And it just wasn't really feasible to carry on doing the band because the rest of the band were in London. So again, we thought we'd stop doing music altogether, but we thought, well, if we ever have a band again, it may as well be with this set of people. But of course, what has happened over time is people's lives go different ways. So John now lives up north. Uh, Katrina actually lives in Scotland. And Emily has had a baby and therefore probably is not particularly interested in doing music at the moment either. So yeah, I think officially we are still on the hiatus. But I don't think anyone's clamoring for us to get back together.
0: Well, I am. (laughs) 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 Yeah, so hiatus, moved to the country, and not too long after, you and Rob started up a band called the Catenary Wires, and this one is quite a bit different from the other ones, and I would assume that's because Rob is... More actively involved in writing the songs, and he's certainly singing on songs. Yeah. When we moved,
2: we didn't necessarily, again, consider that we were going <laughs> to carry on doing music. And we thought we'd just write some songs for ourselves, just with a little acoustic guitar at home. And we didn't actually know anyone locally that played music. So we didn't really think we had much of a chance of putting a band together together. Anyway, um, so we just do this stuff on our own. And, of course, gradually we'd write songs going, oh, this is quite good, actually. Maybe we should record it properly and put it out. And so we did. We like a lot of bands that are kind of sad and slow, and we thought, let's try that. We've got to be acousticy anyway because we're in the middle of nowhere. So let's be inspired by our desolate nowhereness and write songs that are... More minimal and slower. I think it's all right. Um, You know, I think there's some good songs on there. I think that it's probably not very us. (laughs) So, what's gradually happened in Catenary Wires is, again, the songs have got, have picked up. They've got more poppy. The most recent album's got lots of harmonies. It's got five people again, with everybody adding their kind of contributions. And again, all coming from slightly different places. So again, it's a band that... It doesn't really sound like the earlier bands that much, but it, again, is a band that I think is quite interesting because it doesn't really sound like anything else either. It's everybody coming together and
0: creating
2: some sort of mesh of everybody's influences.
0: Yeah. Well, let's listen to a song. This is a song called Liminal from the Catenary Wires 2021 album Berlin Gap. Fantastic. And this is still an active band, is that correct? It is an active band, yes. Okay. Yes, with the most most recent album released in 2021. Yeah. And you've been very busy because not only do you have that band, but you also, with your husband Rob, have started your own record label. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> called Skepwax. That's right, yeah, yeah. And you're also involved in a band called Swansea Sound. Am I saying that right? I don't. These are not words that I know. I don't know what is a Swansea, <laughs> and it's a.
2: <laughs> okay, Swansea is a town in in Wales. Okay. And Swansea Sound is actually the name of a radio station in Swansea in Wales that catered for the people of South Wales for many years, and last year. No, maybe it was two years ago now. It got bought up by a big German corporate company called Bauer. And they have a habit of basically buying up all these kind of quite local stations that cater to local people and have local adverts and local content. And they buy them up and then they just feed in their kind of standardized content from the center. So it's now changed from being called Swansea Sound to being called Greatest Hits Radio um, <laughs> South Wales, and we decided, therefore, we would we would take the name since they discarded it and <laughs> and make a band out of it.
0: Well, fantastic. I listened to some of that, and it's really fun. I like the sound.
2: Yeah, that's got Hugh from The Poo Sticks, so mm-hmm. going right back to when I sang in The Poo Sticks. In the 80s, I stayed friends with Hugh, um, and we thought he would be the perfect singer for that that band. So he is, he, is, he is the singer, despite the fact that he does live in Swansea, which is a very long way from where we
0: live. Yeah. Well, let's listen to one last song. Swansea Sound, in fact, has a new album coming out this September called 20th Century. So we're going to listen to the first single off the album. It's a duet between Hugh and Amelia called Keep Your Head On. Maybe we're
1: living there already My sense of the future's outstanding
0: wow that's so much music so many bands so much great stuff I suppose by way of wrapping this up do you want to talk about your record label a little bit and, and what you're up to with that and the exciting things that are going on with Sketwax so
2: Sketwax again is a kind of a creature of lockdown because we just had more time than we normally do because uh, we weren't uh, playing gigs um, and we weren't socialising. We'd always kind of thought it would be nice to do a record label and we just thought, okay, let's, what's actually stopping us? So we created it for Catenary Wires and for Swansea Sound. But actually, what we found was it worked quite well and it's been more fun than we might have thought. <laughs> So we are now branching out. Uh, we've done an album with a band called The Orchids who were around on Sarah when we were around on Sarah back in the 90s and we're a very fine Scottish band. And we are now about to release records by bands that aren't as old as us. One is a local singer-songwriter called Malady. Her album will be out in January and I'll probably be sending you a single quite soon. It's Very piano based and amazing songs sung beautifully with lots of harmonies. And then a band called Panic Pockets, who are a London based, slightly punky band, kind of not a million miles away from some of the bands that we've been in historically. It's it's two girls. They're very much singing about... about not wanting to settle down and boyfriends being annoying and children being annoying. And it's really good fun, really great songs. And I'm very excited about that album too.
0: Yeah, I look forward to that. That's really exciting.
2: The other thing that the label is going to be doing imminently is re-releasing the four Heavenly albums on vinyl because they've
0: not been available on vinyl for a long time <laughs> okay fantastic something for everyone to look forward to yeah. i will be posting a spotify playlist to probably all of these songs uh we play clips of today and maybe more so if you want to hear full versions of the songs or you want to dig a little deeper into the catalog that's going to be available for you amelia thank you so so much for joining me today well thank you It's been it's been really fun i've really enjoyed it I hope a lot of listeners hear some things that they like. And, you know, I look forward to hearing even more Amelia Fletcher music in the future. (laughs) Fingers crossed. So this was This is Modern Rock. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you want to contact me, you can reach me at thisismodernrock at gmail.com. And that's about it. Have a good one. And uh, we'll catch you all next episode. Brilliant. Bye.